want to thank everyone again for the invitation and the opportunity to be here with you. If you weren't here in the first hour, I want to uh, say again that I'm very thankful not only to be here, but that Jennifer is able to be with me. And if uh, you haven't met her, I hope you'll, you'll get to do that before this meeting's over. Uh, it will go by very quickly. I enjoyed my time with you uh, here a few years ago so much, and I know uh, how, how fast this goes by, but hopefully we will seize the moment. The Lord will be glorified and magnified in everything that we do, and that we'll all be edified as a result of our time in God's Word. I want to ask you to open your Bibles, if you will, to Numbers, the 20th chapter. Numbers, the 20th chapter. We're going to be looking at a text there in Numbers, chapter 20. <clears throat> Beginning in verse 1, the scripture says, Then the children of Israel and the whole congregation came into the wilderness of Zin in the first month, and the people stayed in Kadesh, and Miriam died and was buried there. Now there was no water for the congregation, so they gathered together against Moses and Aaron, and the people contended with Moses and spoke, saying, If only we had died when our brethren died before the Lord. Why have you brought up the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness, that we and our animals should die here? And why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It is not a place of grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, nor is there any water to drink. So Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the door of the tabernacle of meeting, and they fell on their faces, and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the rod, you and your brother Aaron, gather the congregation together, speak to the rock before their eyes, and it will yield its water. Thus you shall bring water for them out of the rock, and give drink to the congregation and to their animals. Moses took the rod from before the Lord, as he commanded him. And Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, Hear now, you rebels. Must we bring water for you out of this rock? Then Moses lifted his hand and struck the rock twice with his rod. And water came out abundantly, and the congregation and their animals drank. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe me, to hallow me in the eyes of the children of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. This was the water of Meribah, because the children of Israel contended with the Lord, and he was hallowed among them. I know you're familiar with this text, but we need to read it one more time so that we can familiarize ourselves with the context of our study this morning. As we think about Moses and the children of Israel having come out of Egypt, I want to tell you that what they did coming out of that land of Egypt was an absolute military and a logistic wonder. An 80-year-old man led and liberated about three million people without firing a shot, without drawing a sword. The whole record of their liberation out of that bondage, their deliverance from Egyptian bondage is absolutely stunning. And I believe that the mighty hand of God is seen from the birth of Moses all the way to Israel's entrance into Canaan. And as we look at our text here, as we just read, we notice some things. First of all, we see the time, the setting, and the background. It was the, 40, it was the first month of the 40th year of wandering. And if you will note verse 1, verses 22 through 29, and, verses, and chapter 33 and verse 38, you'll put all of that together. 
They had been wandering for 39 years at this point. Moses is now at about 119 years old. The setting is in the wilderness of Zin, Kadesh to be specific. It's right on the border of Canaan. Miriam, the sister of Moses, has just died and been buried. The people are mourning for the great prophetess and there's no water for the people or the animals to drink. I think it's important though that we understand the background because this isn't the first time that Moses and that God's people had been to this place. As a matter of fact, they had come full circle back to where they were 39 years earlier. Kadesh Barnea on the border of Canaan where 39 years earlier, Moses sent 12 spies into the land and Israel was punished for their unbelief. I just want to say that as we begin this study, as we begin to see what transpires, this had to be an emotional place for Moses to return to. You know, any time that we've been to a place where something traumatic has happened, going back there for the first time, it's difficult for us, is it not? I want you to think about the trauma that Moses went through in being told, not because of any sin he committed, but to go back and to wander another 40 years in the wilderness. When we look at this particular event, we see the command, we see the disobedience. I want to say the command was clear in verse 8. God said, take the rod, you and your brother Aaron, gather the congregation together, and speak to the rock before their eyes. It will yield its water and thus you should bring water for them out of the rock. The command was crystal clear and simple. Take the rod, speak to the rock. The disobedience was blatant. So Moses took the rod from before the Lord as he commanded him. And Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock. He said to them, here now you rebels, must we bring water for you out of this rock? And then Moses lifted his hand and struck the rock twice with his rod and water came out. He took the rod and he struck the rock. It could not have been clearer. The punishment was swift. In chapter 20 and in verse 12, the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and said, because you did not believe me to hallow me in the eyes of the children of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land. Moses pled with the Lord. If you look in Deuteronomy chapter 3, it's interesting in verses 23 through 26, Moses said that he pled with the Lord several times to change his mind, but to no avail. God said, you're not entering in. I believe that there are some lessons here for us. You know, 1 Corinthians tells us that in chapter 10. The New Testament writer is making us aware of the fact that as the, Paul wrote in the book of Romans in chapter 15 and verse 4 that the things that were written before were written for our learning. And so the, the apostle Paul writing to the Corinthians takes these events of the children of Israel leading up into their entrance into Canaan. And he said, all of these things happened to them as examples. And they were written down for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. There are some lessons to learn from this. We cannot allow them to escape us. What lessons can we learn? Well, there are just a few that I want to share with you this morning. There are more than a few lessons in this, but there are just a few that we have time for this morning. So I ask you to give me your kind attention 
and look as we go through this text and make some applications of it. One of the first things that I want you to observe with me is one of these what I call pearls that as you study through the Bible, you, you read maybe a story that you've read countless times and then something stands out to you and you think, wow, there's something there I need to come back to. I need to spend some time on that. I need to study that for just a little bit. And what I want you to notice with me is that as we look at this particular account, notice in Numbers chapter 20 and in verse 12, God spoke to Moses and Aaron and said, because you did not believe me to hallow me in the eyes of the children of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. Notice he said, it's because you did not believe me. And so I want us to notice then this beautiful relationship that the Bible reveals between faith and obedience. Yes, I, I believe that we'll find this lesson among many other places, but we find this jewel hidden once again in this event in Moses' life. I say that we see this relationship between faith and obedience because in this account, God tells Moses and Aaron because they didn't believe him, they wouldn't enter into the promised land. But I want you to notice in verse 24, God again states before the death of Aaron, why they wouldn't enter in. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, Aaron shall be gathered to his people for he shall not enter the land which I have given to the children of Israel because you rebelled against my word. Whoa, whoa. I thought it was all about just not believing. Here in the same context, he says it's because they disobeyed. They rebelled against his word. Which one was it? Well, it's not one or the other. That, that's the thing. That so many times when people see the word faith and then elsewhere they see something about obedience or works of obedience, they think that these things are completely binary. That it's either one or it's the other. And the reality is that many times in the Bible, we see this relationship where both are intended. Uh, let me express this. Uh, looking at another passage. Notice what Joshua said about their failure to enter in. Look with me in the book of Joshua in chapter 5. Turn to jo Joshua chapter 5, and I want you to notice there in verse 6. Joshua said, For the children of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness, till all the people who were men of war who came out of Egypt were consumed, because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. Joshua said the children of Israel did not enter into the promised land because they did not obey. But I want you to listen to the New Testament writer in the book of Hebrews. Turn now to Hebrews in chapter 3, and I want you to notice what the inspired writer says in verses 18 through 19. Hebrews chapter 3 in verses 18 through 19. He says, And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. You know, there is a principle of logic, of truth, that says that two things that are equal to the same thing are equal to one another. And what he's talking about here when he says they didn't enter in because of unbelief, when he's already said they didn't enter in because they did not obey, 
He's not talking about a binary use of these two words. He's talking about a relationship between faith and obedience. The Hebrew word that we're seeing here in Numbers chapter 20 is the word aman. And it's the same word translated believe in Genesis 15 and in verse 6 when it says that Abraham believed God that was accounted to him for righteousness. And that is related back to us in the book of Romans in chapter 4. And that Hebrew word corresponds to the Greek word pistuo that is typically used primarily for the word belief or believe. So we're talking about the same thing. When the Old Testament was translated into Greek, the Greek word pistuo was used to translate this word. We're talking about the same thing. When we talk about believing here, we're talking about the same word as believing in the New Testament. And what I'm wanting us to see is that what we have before us is what I would suggest to you is a case of synecdoche. That's a, that's a fancy word, but it is a figure of speech. You're familiar with the figure, even though you may not be familiar with the word, but I'm sure that you've heard it at one point or another. Synecdoche is a figure of speech where the part is put for the whole, and we use it all the time. We may not realize that's what we're doing. We use it all the time. For instance, if I said something about the Chiefs won the Super Bowl, I, I got to get that in, you know, being from Kansas City. The Chiefs won the Super Bowl. I'm not talking about a group of Native American people, of which I am, so no offense there in any way. You know that I'm talking about the Kansas City Chiefs. I don't have to say that, though, do I? We can talk about the Panthers or the Jaguars or the Cowboys. We know, based upon the context, what we're talking about, that synecdoche, the part that is put for the whole. And there are a number of cases of this. Look in John chapter 3. John chapter 3 is a case uh, in, in point that I think brings this out so well. And you're familiar with verse 16, John chapter 3 and verse 16, but I want you to back up to verse 14. We're going to read verse 14 down through verse 16 to see the use of this. In John chapter 14, I'm sorry, in John chapter 3, beginning in verse 14, I want you to see there, the Bible says, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. What is the type antitype in this, con in this context? The type is the lifting up of the brazen serpent. Moses lifted up that serpent, and he said, even as... That event sets the context or it sets the, the, the metaphor, the figure, the idea before us of salvation by faith. Okay? That's what he's saying. Even as these people that were healed by that brass serpent, by God, by means of that brass serpent, are an example of being saved by faith that we read about in verse 15 and 16. But was it by faith only? You know it wasn't. When we look at that particular context, we're talking about a context in the book of Numbers. And when we see that in the book of Numbers, it is a situation where these people look, Numbers 20 in verses, uh, um, or I'm sorry, in uh, where the uh, people look at the brass serpent. And when they looked at it, the Bible tells us that they live. Numbers chapter 21, the next chapter after our context. In Numbers 21 and verses 8 through 9, it says, When he looked, 
He lived. It wasn't just faith. It was faith that prompted his obedience to look at the brass serpent and be healed. But what I'm wanting you to see is that Jesus uses an event that coupled faith and obedience. And he said, that's what I'm talking about in verse 15 and 16 when I say that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. He's not talking about faith only. Because that's not what happened in Numbers 21. That's not what happened with the brass serpent. That's not what happened in the type that Jesus gives us. It was a case of salvation by faith that works. But he just says faith. That doesn't mean he's leaving out the obedience in Numbers 21. It means that it is a case of synecdoche where the part is put for the whole. As a matter of fact, the American Standard Version in John chapter 3 and in verse 36, going back to John 3, in John 3 and 36, the American Standard Version says, He that believeth on the Son hath eternal life, but he that obeyeth not the Son shall not see life. See how the idea of faith and obedience is coupled together in this particular context. That's what he's conveying to us. Living, saving faith is always coupled or joined with obedience. In every case, John 3, 36, he that obeyeth not the Son shall not see life. Living, not just faith, but living saving faith. James 2 tells us that there is such a thing as dead faith. But living, saving faith is always coupled together or joined with obedience. And we see that, as I said, in James chapter 2. Notice with me in James chapter 2, where he says in verse 17, he says, thus also faith by itself if it does not have works, is dead. I don't know how the Holy Spirit could make a statement any clearer about faith only. Faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Then he says in verse 24 through 26, you see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only, Rahab is given as an example in verse 25, and then in verse 26, for as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. What we're seeing in this context then with Moses and with Aaron is that obedience to God's revealed will is the demonstration of living faith. I'm not saying that obedience is faith and faith is obedience i'm saying that obedience is the demonstration of living saving faith and and where there is that living saving faith it will be coupled together with obedience and that is the faith that saves not faith alone it is faith joined together demonstrated by obedience i want you to notice with me in james chapter 2 and in verse 18, he even says, but someone will say, now this is right after he said in verse 17, faith by itself, if it does not have works is dead. Verse 18, he says, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. And the writer says, show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. 
What's he saying there? He's saying that obedience is the demonstration of saving faith. And the most beautiful example of this is there in James 2, starting in verse 21, regarding Abraham, who believed God and it was accounted him for righteousness. But listen to what James writes. In James 2 and verse 21, he says, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works and by works faith was made perfect or complete in its complete sense, complete including living and saving aspect. And then he says in verse 23, and the scripture was fulfilled, which says Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness and he was called the friend of God. Here is a, a perfect case in point where he says the Old Testament says that Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness, but that didn't mean believe only. That clearly in, in was comprehensive of a faith that obeyed. Because he says that's when that faith was made complete. That's when it was made full. And in that sense, Abraham was not only justified by faith, he was also justified by works. Not by faith only, not by works only, but by faith working through love. In Romans chapter 1 and in verse 5, the book of Romans that is so often abused, misused to teach faith only salvation, that whole epistle sits between two bookends in the first chapter and in the last chapter. In Romans 1 and in verse 5, he says, Through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. Notice that he begins the book by talking about obedience to the faith. Then notice in chapter 16, as he closes the letter, in Romans 16 and verse 26, he says, But now made manifest, and by the prophetic scriptures made known to all nations, according to the commandment of the everlasting God, for obedience to the faith. He's telling us about the importance of a faith that obeys. And brethren, that's what the book of Romans is all about. Not about faith only. It's about obedience to the faith. So obedience is the demonstration of living faith and likewise disobedience to God's revealed will is the demonstration of a lack of living, saving faith. And that's what we're seeing in Hebrews chapter 3 and verses 15 through 19. He says there in Hebrews 3 and verse 15, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Notice what he calls it rebellion for whom having heard rebelled indeed was it not all who came out of Egypt led by Moses you know he's talked in verse 18 and 19 about the, their unbelief but here in verse 15 and 16 he's talking about rebellion verse 17 now with whom was he angry 40 years was it not with those who sinned whose corpses fell in the wilderness and to whom did he not swear that they would not enter in his rest but to those who did not obey, we see they could not enter in because of unbelief. He's coupling these together. It's all about disobedience being a dis demonstration of a lack of living, saving faith. And so then, it is in this sense that Moses did not believe. 
It was demonstrated by his rebellion to God's word in Numbers chapter 20. God said, you did not believe me to hallow me. He didn't obey God. He did not follow God's instruction because by doing what God said, God would be glorified. He would be hallowed. That's what we're going to talk about in our next point. But he's saying you didn't believe me to obey me is what he's saying. You didn't have complete or perfect faith like Abraham did. That's the point here. You know, there is a word in our language, the word synergy. The word synergy means the interaction or cooperation of two or more things to produce a combined effort greater than the sum of their separate effects. I've, I've got to read that because I couldn't memorize it. I know what synergy means, but I couldn't just give you a good definition off the top of my head, but you know what it means now. You've probably used it. You know, the, the great debate between the ideas of Augustine and Calvin, uh, their, their ideas of, of uh, no free will and of God determining everything, uh, the difference between what they believe and taught and what the Bible teaches is the difference between monergism and synergism. They say that it's all of God. It's monergism. It's only one being. God does everything. But the Bible says it's synergism. That God does the lion's share. He does the greater part. We'll see that on Tuesday night. And our part, however minuscule it is, there is a cooperation that we play in, in believing and confessing and repenting. And that's the idea of synergism. Working together. What I want you to consider with me this morning is that we see a synergy between faith and obedience that saves the believer. In Galatians chapter 5 and in verse 6, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything, but faith working through love. Faith working. That's the idea that he has for us here. The synergy between the body and the spirit is the illustration that he uses in James chapter 2. For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. He's not saying that they're the same thing, but he's saying that they work together to accomplish this idea of salvation. As the body and the spirit must work together to, to have life, faith and obedience must work together. The synergy is what he's talking about. And this is exactly what we're seeing in Romans chapter 4 when he talks about Abraham's steps of faith. In Romans 4 and verse 12, he says, And the father of circumcision, speaking about Abraham, to those who, have, who not only are of the circumcision, but who also walk in the steps of the faith which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. I want to ask you, what are those? What are those steps of the faith? That's doing something. Faith that saves has steps. It has action. It does something. And this was Abraham's obedience to God's revealed will for him. And it was the demonstration of his living, saving faith. James was talking about when Abraham offered his son Isaac. And he said, then it was fulfilled. The scripture that said, Genesis 15 and 4, that Abraham believed God and it was accounted him for righteousness. He said it was fulfilled then. You know what God said after Abraham offered Isaac his son? He said, now I know. Abraham demonstrated his faith in a real 
in a saving way and it was accounted to him for righteousness. That's precisely what it means. In 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 7 when he says, For we walk by faith and not by sight. Walking by faith is what Abraham did. That means I believe and I demonstrate that by doing. And it's when those two come together that there is righteousness accounted. That's when we are saved. It is this bringing together of faith and obedience. I believe that this context has a beautiful understanding of that relationship. But let me suggest another one quickly. And that is how God is hallowed, glorified, or sanctified. And what we, reveal, what we have revealed here is God says that, they, that Moses and Aaron did not hallow him in the eyes of the children of Israel. I want you to consider that God is hallowed or glorified. That is, our fear and our reverence is shown by submitting to his will and to his authority. God was not hallowed before the people because Moses did it his way. And it reminds us to a large degree of Aaron's two sons, Nadab and Abihu, who decided to burn the incense their way. They got fire that they had not been authorized to use. In 1 Peter 4 and verse 11, he says, If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. And then he says that God may be glorified in all things. God's glorified when we speak his words, when we do his will. You know, when a coach sends a play in, if that play, if they run that play and a touchdown is scored, at least as far as the brilliant mind is concerned, the coach gets the, the credit for that play, for the wisdom of that play. If the quarterback calls an audible and runs a different play and they score, he gets the glory for that. And what we've got is too many people calling audibles and trying to practice Christianity according to their own wisdom. We've got to do it God's way. And there are a number of reasons, I think, why Moses allowed himself to get caught up in this, but he did not obey God. He added to his word. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, Moses wrote, You shall not add to the word which I command you. In Deuteronomy 4 and in verse 2. I bet that brought chills to him as he wrote this after he realized he would never enter in. We find the same thing in Revelation 22. In Proverbs 30 and in verse 6, he says, Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. We must follow his prescribed worship in order to have his blessings. Let me mention another thing about this, and that is, we cannot go back to authority that doesn't apply and reject current applicable instruction. I say that because God had authorized Moses God had authorized Moses to strike the rock in an earlier situation. In Exodus chapter 17 and verses 5 through 6, I want you to notice there that God told Moses to strike the rock and water came forth. But this authorization did not apply to the current situation because God had replaced it with new instruction. And his new instruction was speak to the rock. Different people, different instruction. That's not hard to understand, is it? You know, the same thing is true when it comes to those who want to go to the Old Testament, maybe the book of Psalms, to try to authorize the use of instrumental music in worship. There's no doubt 
God authorized David regarding worship under the Old Covenant in Psalm 150 in verses 4 through 6. He authorized them to use instruments in certain aspects of their worship under the Old Covenant. But we're not under the law of Moses. We're not under that covenant. Different people, different legislation. We're under the law of Christ, the law of faith. And Christ instructs and authorizes us regarding worship under the new covenant for all men. And the only authority we have for music and worship to God is to sing. And to go back to the Old Testament to find instruments is no different than Moses justifying striking the rock because God once said to do it before. There's another thing here in this that I want to mention as well, and that is that the end doesn't justify the means. Did you notice as we read through this event that Moses struck the rock after God said, speak to it, and water came out of the rock? What I want you to recognize is that good results do not always indicate God's approval. Moses struck the rock, he sinned, but water came forth. That didn't mean that God approved of what he did. We see that God didn't. God said, you didn't hallow me, so I'm going to hallow myself. And he did that by giving the people water and working a miracle at that particular time. But at the same time, he was hallowed by punishing Moses and Aaron for their disobedience. Here's the reason I think that we need to realize this. Because sometimes we're tempted, and some of our brethren even use this excuse to practice things that we have no authority for. You know, back when the Herald of Truth was invented in the minds of men, a church in Abilene, Texas, to spread the gospel, a human organization that churches would send money from their treasury to, to preach the word of God. The gospel, in many respects, was proclaimed the television, radio, in print, and no doubt people obeyed the gospel as a result of things that they heard through this arrangement that was unscriptural. The fact that people obeyed the gospel as a result of that did not justify its unauthorized existence. The fact that if we had a, a pizza dinner here at 5 o'clock to get more young people to hear the gospel, somebody says, well, you've got a lot of people hearing it. Somebody might even obey the gospel. It does not justify the church being involved in something that is not a work of the church, which is social and recreational. That, the church is not authorized in that realm. But every time that we challenge someone a brother or a sister where's your authority for these for the church kitchens or, or for the human organizations and the sponsoring church they'll say but look at all the good that it does yeah and moses striking the rock brought forth water did that justify what he did we need to go and look at the punishment and realize that the end doesn't justify the means we see that with king saul in first samuel chapter 15. And finally, let me say that we realize not only the relationship between faith and obedience and how God is hallowed, but we've got to learn. We've got to learn not to let the unrighteous actions of others to cause us to stumble. You know, when I look back at Moses' life, my heart goes out to this man. He was a leader of God's people and so unappreciated on so many occasions. He had a heavy burden with the people. You know, they started complaining just one month after leaving Egypt, and they complained again shortly thereafter in Exodus chapter 17. The people departed from God, made a golden calf in Exodus 32. 
In Numbers 11, they complain again. God sent fire to punish them. In Numbers 12, Aaron and Miriam complained against Moses' marriage to an Ethiopian woman. I mean, it was one thing for the people to complain. Now his own brother and sister are attacking him over something that God clearly allowed and a liberty. The people refused to go into the land and God said that that was the 10th time that they had rebelled against him. That tells me we don't even have everything recorded that they did. That's in Numbers 14 and 22. In Numbers 16, Korah, Dathan, and Abiram rebelled against Moses and Aaron. He must have been weary. And here he is again, back at this same place where the children of Israel rebelled against God, turned away from him, you know, at one point, the people even wanted to stone Moses. And it's not just everything Moses went through, but I want you to understand that Moses, he had his own personal struggle. He, he wasn't a, a, some superhuman hero. He had his own personal struggle just like we do. Numbers 12 says in verse 3 that he was the meekest man on the earth, but Exodus 32 and in verse 19 reveals that his anger burned hot at times. And there's another problem. He also struggled with discouragement. Notice with me in Numbers chapter 11. In Numbers chapter 11, I want you to notice where he is, uh, where we see this, uh, this uh, uh, discouragement that, that Moses had. Get to it. His discouragement in Numbers chapter 11, I want you to notice with me in verses 10 through 15. Numbers chapter 11 and verse 10 through 15. Moses heard the people weeping throughout their families, everyone at the door of his tent. And the anger of the Lord was greatly aroused. Moses also was displeased. Now listen to verse 11. Moses said to the Lord, why have you afflicted your servant? And why have I not found favor in your sight that you have laid the burden of all these people on me? Did I conceive all these people? Did I beget them that you should say to me, carry them in your bosom as a guardian carries a nursing child to the land which you swore to their fathers? Where am I to get meat to give all these people? For they weep all over me saying, give us meat that we may eat. I'm not able to bear all these people alone because the burden is too heavy for me. If you treat me like this, please kill me here and now. If I found favor in your sight. He said, I'm ready to go. You may have felt that way before. That reminds us of Elijah, doesn't it? Moses struggled with discouragement. Bless his heart. I don't think I would have lasted as long as he did. But here's the problem. Look in Psalm 106. Turn over to the 106th Psalm. And in verse 33. 106th Psalm and in verse starting in verse 32. And I want you to notice something there. The psalmist says in verse 32, the 106th Psalm, they angered him also at the waters of strife. That's the waters of Meribah that we just read about. So that it went ill with Moses on account of them because they rebelled against his spirit so that he spoke rashly with his lips. You know, it doesn't say anything about him striking the rock. The psalmist brings out what Moses said. What did Moses say? He said, must we bring water from this rock for you rebels? It appears to me that at Kadesh, meet Moses, let it get personal. And he spoke in anger and he exalted himself as the one giving them the water. 
And it would make sense. He took it upon himself to do it his way when he struck the rock. And this is the danger of discouragement. This is the danger is we can get so down and we begin to look at ourselves. You know, Samuel was struggling with that when the people asked for a king and God warned him. He said, Samuel, they're not rejecting you. It's me. Hey, get, get your mind off yourself. This is about me. And we need to be reminded of that. When brethren disappoint us, when people sin and we suffer the consequence of it, it's about God. Ultimately, don't let it get personal. That's such a dangerous thing. I want to tell you that anger and discouragement and bitterness are incredibly dangerous. We've got to stay in control of our spirit when the unrighteous around us anger us. We see Jesus and the money changers in John 2. He was defending the cause of God. Phineas and the sinner in the camp in Numbers 25. He was zealous for his God. It was about God. It wasn't about Phineas. David with, with, uh, with uh, Goliath. He said the battle is the Lord's. Goliath was insulting David personally. David shrugged it off and said the battle is the Lord's. Elijah and Moses both struggled with discouragement. Paul said in Galatians 6 and in verse 9, let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap. Brethren, that is so important. Don't grow weary while doing good, and especially in times of suffering. The Hebrew writer in Hebrews 12 and in verse 3 says that we need to consider him who endured such hostility from sinners, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. That's the problem. Discouragement leads to bitterness and bitterness to division. We'll be talking about that this evening. Satan constantly works to divide and conquer through deceit, through error, and through bitterness. We need to learn some lessons in this event. But I want to ask you this morning before we leave, do you desire water from that rock? You need to. Jesus is that rock, 1 Corinthians 10, and in verse 4, all drink of the same spiritual drink, for they drank of the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Jesus said in Revelation 22 and in verse 17, the spirit and the bride say, come, let him who hears say, come, let him who thirsts come, whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. But we're going to take that water of life. We're going to receive that eternal life through an obedient faith as we've already recognized. If you're here this morning and you have not obeyed the gospel, the opportunity is yours. You can come this morning believing in Christ as the Son of God, confess your faith in Him, repent of your sins, and be buried with Him through faith in the working of God and rise, and rise up to walk in newness of life. You can be saved this morning. Whatever your need is, we appeal to you to come while we stand and sing the invitation song.